time I bought bread in a store was probably eight or nine years ago. Bread, buns, rolls, cakes, cookies, biscuits, everything now like that has been made from scratch. It's not as hard as it sounds. Really, it sounds more impressive than it actually is. Ridiculously easy. All you need is to have ingredients on hand and perhaps the right pan. Hot dog buns certainly need a special pan if you want them to be uniform, but other than that, I bet you've got everything you need right now. After plugging along doing my thing, I upped my baking game a couple years ago by taking some cooking and baking classes from a French chef. Chef Roland is bona fide. He's from France and has some serious credentials underneath his toque. He retired from teaching in the culinary department at Mississippi State University and had previously worked in several restaurants around the world and helped found the La Madeleine restaurant chain. Why is he here in the middle of freaking nowhere like us? Good question. I had to ask. The answer was straightforward. His wife had parents nearby, so they moved up to the Ozarks to retire in order to be closer to them. And they, liked us, liked it. It was Chef's plan all along to open a small cafe and have a cooking school. He and his wife Elaine made their dream happen. They bought a small building, a former gas station, in the small town of Fordland. French cooking classes just 30 minutes away? Crazy! With a max of 10 students, Chef would keep us busy for four hours at a time. I took a few classes, signed up for the package of five classes, and then even took a few more single classes. I don't know how many I ended up taking. Chef would see me walk in and just shake his head. What are you doing back? But, Chef, you think I can learn how to make perfect croissants after only one or two lessons? I found I would pick up a new trick or tidbit every time I went back. Chef would plan on an entree in a suite, a chicken dish or beef and puff pastry with a fruit tart. He might not decide until the morning of the class what the agenda would be. And then there were the baking classes where we learned about breads, croissants of many kinds, and puff pastry magic. Chef has his own recipe for sourdough starter, which I follow to this day. The proper recipe is on our website on the posting for this episode. Chef gave me permission to post it, and if you are interested in his cookbook, I have a link for that there too. Chef begins by cutting up Granny Smith apples and letting them stand in water to ferment on the counter. This liquid is mixed in with a small amount of flour and continues to catch yeast. I just plucked a couple apples from a tree of ours, looking for ones that had a bit of character on the skin. 
not perfect and unblemished. I find this starter to be more robust, aromatic, and flavorful than the plain flour and water variety. This starter of mine has been in the fridge now a couple years. Every now and then I give it a good stir and feed it a bit more flour and water, maybe even transfer it to a clean container. When I'm ready to bake sourdough bread, I only need a tablespoon from my mother batch. The tablespoon of starter is added to 200 grams of flour and 200 grams of water. Stirred well, this leaven sits overnight on the counter. In the morning, the mixture is bubbly and light. Only half is going to be used for the bread. The other half I get to use for breakfast. Okay, before we get into the bread baking, this is what you do with the leftover leaven. After you've taken the half out that you'll need for the bread, mix a beaten egg and a half cup more flour into the bowl. Splash a little bit of milk and you have a killer waffle batter. Perfect for two large waffles. You can add whole wheat flour, spelt, or even buckwheat flour. The waffles will be crispy and light. Back to the sourdough bread. The morning leaven is stirred into a container of water and flour is worked in by hand. A nice shaggy dough forms and after a 20 minute rest, I add salt that is in an ounce more of water. Every 30 minutes, the dough gets manhandled in the mixing bucket and it's amazing how quickly it goes from shaggy dough to a stretchy smooth dough. Once it has grown double, it's plopped on the counter, divided in half, and worked a bit into two circles and allowed to rest. Each dough ball is then placed on a tea towel in a wooden bowl for the final rise. After a few hours, they'll be ready to bake. I use cast iron pots with lids to bake the sourdough. Two Dutch ovens with lids are preheated to 500 degrees. When the dough is carefully placed in the hot pot, I'll give it a few slashes on top with a razor blade so the bread can expand, and the lid is put on. This will trap steam and make the bread incredibly delicious. 20 minutes at 450 with the lid on, and 20 more minutes with the lid off. Ta-da! Two perfect round loaves of sourdough. Slightly chewy crust, light aerated interior and the most wonderful aroma this bread cannot be beat need roller buns just form the dough up into balls and let them rise on a baking sheet instead of that second rise in a bowl an egg wash on top bake in the oven at about oh, 375 or 400 till they are nice and golden brown easy peasy when your bread is nothing but flour, water, salt, and a bit of sourdough starter, you wonder why all the bread at the store contains so many different ingredients. I recommend the book Tartine. It is a super good read. I also make our own pizza dough. Again, super easy and not a hard project. The King Arthur Flour Cookbook is another book I recommend. Theirs is the pizza dough recipe I use. While I'm talking about baking, let me tell you about cookie dough. 
the smartest thing I ever figured out to do is to make a batch of cookie dough, but only bake one sheet of cookies, like 12 or 16. The rest of the dough is frozen for future impromptu cookie baking. Either drop the cookie dough by spoonfuls onto a cookie sheet and freeze it, removing the frozen dabs of dough and keeping them in a freezer bag, or spoon the dough onto clear plastic wrap and make a log to freeze. This can later be sliced for cookies. Preheat your oven to 350 and put your frozen cookie blobs or dough slices on a baking sheet and bake for 12 to 13 minutes. Again, it's so easy to do. I've been watching the weather reports and looking for a coolish day so I could go check on the bees. Too hot and I would melt in my bee suit, but I didn't want to go out too early either when the majority of the forage bees would still be at home. Let them girls get out to work. Fewer bees for me to piss off. I think we got our first starter nukes, a small starter colony of bees, in April or May, the year after we moved here. We had attended the free beekeeping classes in the big city and had joined the local beekeeper club. They held meetings once a month in the library and it gave us an excuse to go to the big city an hour away. We learned a lot from the classes and ordered our first two nukes of starter bees and they were Italians. We had our equipment and hive parts, Badger helped paint the bee boxes, and we still have a couple of those original boxes going on 13 years old. It's good to be queen is written on one box. Stupid is as stupid does on another. Over the course of the years, we've had as many as eight or nine hives to as few as one. We've raised Italian bees and carniolans. Once we got some Russian bees but had to get rid of their queens, these bees were just too aggressive and would go after us when we were walking around in the backyard. We replaced the Russian queens with Italians, and within three months the Russian offspring were gone, replaced by the gentler bee. Whatever can go wrong with bees has happened to us, save one thing, knock wood, black bears. This past winter and spring were no different. Hive number two died from condensation buildup. The bees got damp and chilled, and they all died. All the little bodies piled up in the hive. Totally my fault. I should have given them some ventilation openings. Hive number three absconded. They all just took off. Did they leave because of pests? Hive beetles? Varroa mites? I don't know. They took off and left no honey or brood. Hive number four decided to do a swarm, and my attempts to prevent that failed. I saw that the queen was not laying eggs. She has to lose weight so she can fly off with a swarm. And there were plenty of queen cells built. More about them in a minute. So I knew a swarm was imminent. I put a frame of baby bee brood from hive number one, the only hive that seemed to be happy where it was, thinking that the bee colony would not abandon larvae, but about half of them took off with the old queen anyway. Blind Hog heard them up in a tree beside the house. 
A swarm will stop a few times and ball up on its way to the new location, and they were way up, too high for me to reach and catch them. All I could do was wave them on their way. Another thing I've learned to do is to quit ordering replacement queens. If a hive is queenless, I'll just take a frame from another hive that has freshly laid eggs. The bees in the queenless hive will raise up their own queen from one of the newly laid eggs in a matter of three weeks. If I don't have another hive with fresh eggs, well then, yeah, I'll need to order a queen and it'll come in the mail. Our post office will call me so I can pick her up without delay. A bee queen does not need to ride around with a postal carrier for hours longer than needed. Hive number four was already prepared with queen cells, but they only needed a couple, not like six or seven. So I took a few frames from hive number four that each had a queen cell, and I made two new starter hives, taking some of the hive four bees and trapping them in for about three days to get them used to their new surroundings. But Acorn, can you actually see bee eggs? Sure. Freshly laid eggs will look like a tiny grain of rice standing on its end, smack in the bottom of a cell of comb. After two or three days, the egg will flop over on its side and the larva will hatch. The larva will be fed by the nurse bees. Fun fact, a queen bee will lay fertilized and unfertilized eggs. The fertilized eggs get laid in the smaller worker bee cells and the unfertilized eggs are laid in the larger cells specially made to become drones, the male bees. If the workers think they need a new queen, they'll feed a fertilized worker bee larva royal jelly, a special secretion they make, and build her a larger cell, about the size of a in-the-shell peanut. It'll only take 18 days to go from egg to a hatch queen, who can live for up to five years. A worker bee is out in 21 days, and they only average 45 days of living. And finally, the drones, the only male bee, who will take a slow 24 days to develop, and who may live for 90 days if they don't get lucky to mate. More fun facts? A virgin queen bee must take a mating flight or two to get herself prepped up for laying. The only purpose for drone bees is to mate with a queen and they have to be up in the air at about 200 to 300 feet up to do this. A new queen might mate with up to 20 drones, storing their sperm in her abdomen, and this is thought to be enough to last her a lifetime. The lucky drones who mated a queen will die as a result of the mating, their innards ripped out from the act of bee sex. Drones are also thrown out of the hive in the fall. There will be no mating flights when it is cold, and the workers will need all the honey and stored pollen for the rest of the hive. Leftover drones are simply kicked out. Hey listeners, yes, it is me again, the Blind Hog. I know by now you have all subscribed to the podcast and have been telling your friends, but it doesn't hurt to remind you. 
Akron has posted lots of pictures on the website for the episode this week, so check them out, www.blindhogandacorn.com. I donned on my gear, bee suit and gloves, and got the smoker lit and puffing. Walked over across the rose field to the corner of the field where the hives are located and began my bee check. I've learned that the less I mess with the bees, the better off things are. I think I have a tendency to roll the queens by accident, so once a month checks are good enough for me. Anyway, all I was looking for was capped brood, larvae, and eggs. If I see this, I know immediately the queen is in good shape and is laying. I don't have to go through the whole entire hive to find the queen and take the chance of squashing her between the frames in the process. The top of the hive is lifted and set aside. The inner cover is pried off the top box. The bees like to glue everything down. And a few puffs of smoke on the top of the frames, as well as underneath the hive. Poof, poof, poof. Calm those bees. Using my hive tool with the J end, I think that's self-explanatory, I can hook under one end of a frame and slowly but gently lift it out and inspect it in the sunlight. Capped brood and capped honey is a little similar, but you can tell the difference when you look. Eggs, wet larvae of various ages curled up in their cells, capped brood, and even cells with bees in the process of emerging. It's all there on one frame. Voila! found eggs and larvae in all four hives. The two new hives we started in the spring are doing great. They're up to two boxes now with 20 total frames, and these new colonies are more than triple the size we started with. The last hive I checked, which I call number one, had three boxes of brood frames plus one box I set on top for honey. A queen excluder was placed between this honey box and the one underneath that contained brood and eggs. It's a wire screen that's specially made so only worker bees can go through, but the queen cannot. It keeps her highness out, allowing just honey to be put in these frames. You don't want larva cells intermixed with the honey cells. Well, this top box was full of capped honey, ready to be harvested. The bees put up the liquid, watery honey in the comb and fan their wings to dry it out, decreasing the water content. Once they think it's concentrated enough, they'll cap it off with wax tops. I came back to the house to tell Blind Hog about what I found, and we decided to go ahead and pull the honey while we had the time. We both went back and removed the box of honey and put it in the geo tracker. We weren't going to carry that heavy ass box back across the field. And at the house, we took the frames out one by one and made sure there were no Klingons remaining, blowing off the stray honeybee here and there. Ten frames, bee free, and we were ready to extract. When we started with bees, we bought some used equipment from older guys, including a six-frame electric honey extractor. After cutting the wax cappings off the frames of honey, you set the frames in and close the lid. 
the machine will spin the frames around and the centrifugal force will pull the honey out. Flip the frame 180 degrees and spin out the other side. Well, a few years ago, we decided to sell the electric extractor and a few other bee tools. For what little we were actually harvesting, it seemed like overkill. We didn't lose any money on it. Now we have a small manual extractor that does the same thing as the fancy electric model, but it spins just two frames at a time and you crank it by hand. Big deal. Got it on sale new for $50. A bread knife and a jar of hot water cuts the caps off the wax just as easily as that hot electric knife I'd been using and no risk now of burning my fingertips. We cut the wax caps off both sides of the frames and load them into the frame holders. Blind Hog cranks the handle and will try to get half the honey out of the first side, flip the frame around and try to get all the honey out of the second side, flipping the frame back and trying to get the last of the honey. It doesn't take long. Honey is collected in the bottom of the spinner unit which kind of looks like a big ice cream churn with that side crank, and flows out of a gate valve near the bottom. Honey pours into a sieve placed under the extractor that sits on top of a five-gallon bucket. We extracted two and a half gallons of honey from that one box, about 30 pounds worth. I put the capping wax in the sieve and let the rest of that honey drain in the bucket as well. I saved the wax from the cappings and washed it, let it dry, and crumbled it into a pot. Heated up to melt, poured through an old cheesecloth and into a silicon mold, and there you have it. Recycled beeswax. Another fun fact. For each pound of that honey, 50,000 flight miles were logged by the bees and over 2 million flowers visited. It's staggering to think about. It took us a couple hours to do the extracting and another hour to clean everything up and bottle up the honey into five half-gallon jars. We had taped garbage bags to the floor. You don't want to go tracking honey everywhere. And all in all, it went well. Cleanup was a breeze. The empty frames were put back on the hive we took them from, and the girls went right to work, cleaning up the cells and getting them ready to go. But I had another plan for them. We needed to put three more boxes of frames out on the other hives, but we didn't have the materials. A trip to the big city was made, and we got the wax foundation and woodenware. You have to assemble the frames yourself, and slide in a sheet of pre-made wax foundation, which gives the bees a layer to pull out the cells. The honeycomb pattern is already stamped on the sheets of wax. The bees cannot simply raise larvae or store honey on new foundation. They have to make more beeswax and form up the comb. We took the three boxes of new frames and foundations out to the hives, and I set one box on hive number four, that hive that had swarmed off earlier, but had left all the queen cells. It was going strong now. They would have no trouble pulling out the foundation. Hives number two and three, the two new starter hives, 
needed a bit more help. I took that box of extracted frames back off hive number one and replaced it with a box of new foundation. Let them deal with it. Then split the ten extracted frames between hive number two and hive number three. This will give them a jump on pulling out the foundation since the comb was already fully formed. Bee frames come in three sizes. Deep, medium, and shallow. Usually, beekeepers use the deep boxes for brood and bee food storage, the mediums and the shallows for honey extraction. I like to keep things simple and I just use medium boxes for everything. It makes life so much easier. Instead of two deep brood boxes per hive, I'll let them have three or sometimes four medium boxes if the colony is super robust. If it's dry and droughty, the nectar flows will be slowing down. Clover, though, is still blooming and ragweed will soon begin. The bees are going to have enough to forage on, so I doubt we'll take any more honey from them this year. They need lots of honey to make it through a winter, and so we'll let them have it. Some of the honey from this harvest might be entered in the Honey Bee Research International Honey Judging Competition. I've entered six times and have taken two first place blue ribbons for Best Midwestern, one second place for Best Midwestern, and a third place for, yes, Best Midwestern. I've also entered two other times and didn't make the final cut. Honey is sent in from around the world and a panel of judges does blind taste testing, hence the name Black Jar Competition, as if the jar of honey is hidden in a black sack. There is a modest entry fee and you send in three one-pound bottles. One bottle is judged and the other two are sold. Proceeds go to fund the Nonprofit Bee Association. This coming year will be their 10th anniversary of the contest. I might just have to go for it again. You never know. Well, that'll be about it for this week. All the talk about bread and honey has made me a bit peckish. It's about time for lunch. Have a great week and take care. 